John Tewksbury rode up to the Graham Ranch on July 24, 1884. It was a trip that he had made many times before. His family had helped the Grahams build their first homestead in Pleasant Valley in late 1882, and they had seen much of each other over the intervening year and a half. But this trip was different. John Tewksbury was still slightly injured from a shooting scrape he had just been in a couple days earlier as he climbed down from his horse. Present to meet him were Johnny Graham, his brother Tom, and several hands working for James Stinson. Now, I can't imagine the atmosphere was anything but tense, or that anyone even bothered thinking that this was a simple social call. Earlier that month, John Tewksbury and his two surviving brothers had squared off against the Grahams in a court case that had challenged the Tewksbury family honor and integrity. Though they had won the case and escaped a potential jail sentence, it had come out during the trial that the Grahams, their friends whom they had invited to their valley, built their house and hosted around their own hearth, had agreed to sell them out, trying to use the legal system to bring the hammer down on them. When 29-year-old John Tewksbury approached 32-year-old Johnny Graham that summer day, he did what came naturally considering those circumstances. He slapped Graham across the face in front of everyone. Graham took the assault and didn't fight back, nor did any of those present at the ranch that day. So John Tewksbury just got back on his horse and rode off. This, then, was the first inkling of the anger, resentment, and violence that would be unleashed as the legal war between these two families would one day erupt into full-scale conflict. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 122, The Pleasant Valley War, Part 3, The Legal War. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you and yours had a fantastic break for the holidays. I certainly enjoyed Christmas just a bit more knowing that, unlike Santa, I didn't have to deliver anything on December 25th. And then having New Year's off was just gravy. However, I do need to apologize for my recording voice today. Despite isolating to keep away from what is a truly terrible cold flu and RSV season, as you can tell, I got hit. I'm at that point in the cold where you feel a lot better, but your voice sounds horrible. So we'll just have to muddle through today. Because we are back now, and a new year means a new opportunity to dive deeply into the history of the nation's 48th state. So when we last left off, It was March 1884, and things in Pleasant Valley were not so pleasant. There had been an honest-to-goodness shootout in January 1883 between a combination of Tewksbury's and Graham's and a possibly over-eager representative of James Stinson, the cattle operator who kind of gets cast as the mustache-twirling villain during this part of our drama. This shootout, based on the suspicion of cattle rustling, led to no major changes to the power dynamic in the valley, So Stinson decided to try a different tactic. Meeting privately with Johnny Graham, Stinson offered him a deal. In exchange for Graham ratting out his neighbors for any rustling that was happening, Stinson would turn over 50 cows. 
This might have started as a verbal contract, but in November 1883, an actual written contract was signed, which was duly filed with the county on March 28, 1884. We explored the possible reasons Johnny Graham might have agreed to this contract in our last episode, but we do know that once he entered into this agreement, he didn't look back. And the reason we know this is because on March 29th, the very next day after this contract was filed with Yavapai County, Graham swore out a complaint about rustling against his neighbors. He alleged that his neighbors, namely Ed, John, and Jim Tewksbury, had knowingly altered brands on cattle belonging to James Stinson in October 1883. This was a serious charge, as rustling fell under the category of grand larceny, a felony in the territory, and carried with it a jail sentence of up to 10 years. My sources all want to give different timelines, but it appears that a grand jury was impaneled in either May 1884 or on June 7th, and six witnesses, including James Stinson, Johnny Graham, Tom Graham, some of Stinson's men, Ed Tewksbury, and a Tewksbury friend testified to the grand jury about these charges. The grand jury then handed out four indictments for alleged incidences of cattle wrestling against Stinson and even the Grahams between the fall of 1883 and the spring of 1884. And these indictments named the three Tewksbury brothers and three other Pleasant Valley neighbors known to be their friends and allies. Like I said, the timeline is a bit muddled here, as only one of my sources wants to put a date for this trial, which they claim started on July 7th, 1884. And that is backed up by a newspaper article talking about the outcome, so let's just go with that. On the surface, it would appear that this trial is exactly what Stinson and Johnny Graham wanted. But we need to keep in mind that the contract between the two men stipulated that Stinson would only turn over his cattle for rustling convictions, not indictments. And here was the fatal flaw in the plan. Because the two-day trial did not go their way at all. Almost immediately, the defense was able to raise doubt about the Grahams' testimony, as several neighbors from Pleasant Valley took the stand to say that the Grahams weren't even in the area on the dates in question to witness this alleged cattle rustling. And most damning of all, the defense attorneys managed to find a copy of the Treaty of War, specifically spelling out the deal between Stinson and the Grahams. This evidence of financial incentive for Johnny and Tom Graham to report on wrestling vastly undercut their credibility with the jury. The judge literally told the jury before they began their deliberations, quote, If you believe the Grahams, find the defendants guilty. If you do not believe the Grahams, find the defendants not guilty. End quote. As it would turn out, the jury did not believe the Grahams. The six defendants walked, and the judge actually chewed the Graham brothers out a little bit from the bench for their testimony. And it got worse from there. Two of their neighbors actually immediately turned around and filed perjury charges against the brothers for reporting on this quote-unquote rustling. A grand jury, led by leading Prescott citizen Morris Goldwater, I should add, handed down indictments, but the brothers were released on a bond of $2,000 each, with bail being put up partially by James Stinson. And just so you know, the brothers would choose not to show up for their trial, set for the court's next term in October. However, because this was the frontier and resources were limited with other cases to get to, 
two lying cowpunchers were simply not a high priority, and the case was just set aside. The real loser here was James Stinson, who had lost the original court case, and then had just lost the bail money he put up defending his two recently acquired allies. It was a sting he would not soon forget. Speaking of Stinson, he had already seen the handwriting on the wall. In early May 1884, so after signing his contract with the Grahams, but before the trial of the Tewksbury's had actually taken place, he sold his Pleasant Valley Ranch. He was already an absentee owner living as he did in the Salt River Valley, and it could be that he was over this little drama of penny ante operators sneaking off with his cattle. In any case, Stinson pulled out of the valley and will mostly leave our story now, except there will be one last dust-up over his cattle. On July 22nd, his ranch manager, Francis Marion McCann, and others were busy rounding up the animals to ensure a smooth transfer to their new owners. Onto this scene rode up four men, including John Tewksbury, ostensibly to talk with Stinson's hired hands about the roundup. The only problem here is that one of the visitors, George Blaine, was a short-tempered man who had been indicted along with the Tewksbury's for cattle wrestling. And McCann had been one of the witnesses called during the trial to testify for the prosecution. So there was a lot of bad blood here, and a lot of it less than a month old. McCann apparently wasn't happy to see this party, asking all but one of them to leave which then set Blaine off, who cussed McCann out, and basically said that they could go wherever they darn well pleased. Things remained heated, so Blaine called McCann to come front and center to face him like a man, saying something to the effect of, quote, You expletive-deleted son of an expletive-deleted, you have run this country long enough. End quote. When McCann took Blaine up on this challenge, the latter took aim with his revolver and fired, but missed. Unfortunately, McCann had much better luck with his rifle, shooting Blaine through the throat. At this, John Tewksbury decided to shoot at McCann as well, but he was too hasty on the draw and his shot also missed. McCann fired back, winging John as the men rode off. It was originally reported that Blaine was toast, but remarkably, he would not die from these injuries. However, he did have to endure a three-hour surgery to remove an inch of bone and a molar, all without the benefits of anesthesia, because, yeah, this is 1884. Most of my sources just leave it there, but one does claim that Blaine would actually later go mad due to these injuries. Despite the fact that this shootout was published in newspapers all across the territory, with various reports embellishing facts and taking sides in the whole affair, the legal follow-up was kind of lackluster. McCann would not be brought up on any charges because he had shot in self-defense, and no charges were brought up against Blaine or Tewksbury as both were convalescing from their injuries. As Eduardo Obregón Pagán says in his book Valley of the Guns, it was as if everyone wanted things to cool down again, so no one pursued this case that actively. For the record, it's just a couple days after this incident that a lightly injured John Tewksbury would write up and slap Johnny Graham at his homestead. But before we leave July 1884 behind us, there is another incident paralleling the Graham-Tewksbury-Stinson legal drama that we simply have to cover, because it will set up a whole new corner of this conflict. On July 5th, 
just days before the wrestling trial was set to begin in Prescott, the Apache County Sheriff showed up in town with warrants for the arrest of two men already indicted for cattle theft, Jim Tewksbury and George Blaine. Back on May 29th, two masked and armed men had robbed the ACMI in the Mormon colony of Woodruff. The ACMI, or Arizona Cooperative Mercantile Institution, was both the community's bank and general store and was one of those Mormon cooperative ventures that we talked about back in episode 80. The ACMI's manager was Joseph Fish, a historian by hobby who wrote his own version of Arizona history. From his account, we learned that the two men came into the store around 4 p.m. with their pistols drawn, leveling them on Fish and his clerk, who had been in the back room. Without getting too close, and with a finger on the trigger, they demanded Fish empty out the ACMI safe and throw them the money. The robbers made off with $500 in cash, in addition to a revolver, some ammunition, a few cans of peaches, some tobacco, and a pair of field glasses. All of this they stuffed into a pair of overalls that they had tied the bottoms of, which shows you just the level of technological advancement we are dealing with here. To delay their captives from spreading the alarm, the robbers then marched Fish and his clerk to the edge of town before jumping on their horses and riding off. Fish went back to the store, but his clerk and another man started tracking the robbers. At first, it appeared that the two men were making a break for Holbrook, but it soon became apparent that they had doubled back, and in reality, they were heading for the Tonto Basin. It also so happened that the clerk had recognized one of the men despite his mask. His dark complexion and Amerindian-like features marked him as a Tewksbury from Pleasant Valley, in particular, Jim Tewksbury. It's never made clear how, but the other man was soon identified as George Blaine. Despite this clear identification and the nature of the crime, the ending to the story is a little anticlimactic. After they were cleared on the cattle rustling charge in the Graham case, Jim Tewksbury and Blaine were to appear in St. John's in February 1885 on the robbery charges. But neither man would show up for this trial. George Blaine was still in no condition to travel, and Jim Tewksbury gave the excuse that he had miscalculated how many days it would take for him to get to St. John's in time. However, it didn't really matter because this is 1885, and as we talked about back in episode 82, we are in the middle of the height of anti-polygamy persecution in Arizona. Fish, being a Mormon polygamist, had to flee for the relative safety of Mexico, and so was unavailable. His clerk was also unavailable for some reason and could not testify. The only witness the prosecution could muster was the man that helped the clerk track down the robbers, but he had not seen them for himself, and so he couldn't identify them. The court really had no other choice but to dismiss the case. Now, you might be thinking that the story of the ACMI robbery was a nice little side anecdote, but why am I taking up time talking about it when I should be focusing on the Pleasant Valley War? The reason is that while this robbery itself doesn't contribute to the Tewksbury-Graham feud, it did manage to, in a very roundabout sort of way, pull in yet another source of tension, that of sheep versus cattle. As we talked about briefly in episode 119, the tension between shepherds and cowboys has been exaggerated, embellished, and overblown. However, that doesn't mean that it didn't sometimes exist. 
After all, there's only so much grazing land out there, and someone running hundreds of sheep is competing with someone running hundreds of cows. Some cattlemen even claimed that the very smell of sheep would actually spook cows. But their biggest complaint is that a herd of sheep which ate grass down to the roots denuded whole sections of land, while their hard, sharp hooves would cut up and compact soil, leaving it sterile. Now, most of this came down to range management. Anyone who didn't properly work a herd of sheep could cause these issues, but the same could be said of not properly managing cows. And it has been remarked that sheep and cows could get along on the range together if they had the same owner. For those whose livelihood was in cattle, sheep herders were people to look down on, but for more than just disdain for their animals. As Daniel Justin Herman writes in his book, Hell on the Range, There could be a racial element to all of this, as sheep herders in Arizona at this time tended to be New Mexican, Amerindian, or Basque. Though there were plenty of white American sheep owners, they often hired Navajo, Basque, or New Mexican hands, who had generations of experience, to actually shepherd their herds. Compare that to the cowboys, who were mostly Americans, with maybe a Mexican or black man popping up here and there and I'll leave you to make your own conclusions based on that information. In addition, Herman argues cowboys looked down on shepherds because they simply weren't manly enough. They didn't break horses, ride hard, rope cattle, or wear these six-shooters, chaps, boots, and spurs like the cowboys did. So to the rough-and-tumble cowboy, they often looked like a bunch of miserable, lazy peons who were often dark-skinned to boot. The point being that even though people blaming every bad thing that happened on the range to this livestock rivalry are taking things way too far, there was some truth to the fact that the cowboy and the shepherd were just not friends. Even though he always denied it, a rumor did float around that James Stinson himself declared that he would pay $500 for the head of every man who dared to bring sheep into his neck of the woods. Okay. So what does this all have to do with the Pleasant Valley War? Well, the legal difficulties of Jim Tewksbury and George Blaine in the wake of the ACMI robbery provided a golden opportunity for the biggest sheep magnates of the day, the Daggs brothers. As we mentioned in episode 119, the Daggs brothers, Peru Paxton, William, John, Robert, and Jackson, had been in Arizona since the mid-1870s, and by the mid-1880s were the biggest sheep runners in the territory, supposedly having 50,000 animals at their height. But they also had a very big problem. They were the unstoppable force about to meet the immovable object. That object was the Aztec Land and Cattle Company, otherwise known as the Hash Knife. This is getting ahead of our story a little bit, as the Aztec was just getting going in 1884, but I'm on a roll, so I'm going to keep going before pulling up suddenly on the reins. Basically, since their arrival in the territory, the Dags had been running their sheep along the Little Colorado River. However, once the railroad came in, it was given alternate sections of land along the entire route. So think of one mile square sections of land in a checkerboard fashion running along the railroad. And the hash knife had been formed by a railroad executive, so naturally they claimed this land and labeled everyone else on it a trespasser. They even said you couldn't go through the sections of land they didn't own to get to the ones they did. 
However, the sheep herders didn't really see it this way. As I understand it, and I could be legally wrong here, the hash knife lacked a clear deed to these alternate sections pending the completion of a government survey. Since that was the case, the shepherds decided that they were going to just keep running their sheep wherever they darn well pleased, because the hash knife couldn't evict people from a place they didn't have a clear claim to, right? And so the DAGs throughout the mid-1880s were doing exactly that. This, of course, made the managers of the hash knife simply apoplectic, and all sorts of harassment, violence, and petty shenanigans occurred between both sides. Eventually, a judge will rule that the hash knife had a good enough claim to their land, meaning the sheep herders lost out on what had been their original forage grounds. It's also around this point that the Dags turn their eager eyes toward Pleasant Valley. And here I'm going to pull hard on those reins like I said I would, because that's a couple years into the future. Let's return to 1884, where the Dags seized on an opportunity. Despite the fact that their trial would eventually be dismissed, both Jim Tewksbury and George Blaine were in some deep legal debt. To raise money for their bonds, Blaine and John Tewksbury both suddenly turned around and sold their ranches to the Dags brothers. John was able to get $3,500 for his place, while Blaine got around $3,200, which was an astronomical sum of money for some ranches that were probably worth a few hundred dollars each. The fact that they overpaid for the land, and that the money instantly went into getting Jim Tewksbury and Blaine out on bail, shows that the Dags were definitely seizing an opportunity to make some friends. And this opportunity will bear fruit both good and bad, in the years to come. Okay, so we are now at the end of July 1884. The Grahams try to have their neighbors arrested for rustling and failed. Jim Tewksbury and George Blaine are out on bail for the robbery of the ACMI. Blaine's been shot through the throat after confronting McCann, and John Tewksbury has slapped Johnny Graham across the face. And believe it or not, this is where things stood for the rest of the year. Some historians talk about the tension growing and growing and how the whole of Pleasant Valley was divided between the Grahams and the Tewksbury's with Cherry Creek being some sort of line of demarcation between the factions. But really, all we have so far is some animosity, some neighbors who don't like each other. Nothing that speaks of the violence to come. In fact, the whole community, including the two feuding families, got together again in May 1885 for the semi-annual roundup of animals. Although the Grahams quickly discovered that they only had 120 head of cattle, so something like 100 head less than they had just a couple years beforehand. And some writers are quick to point the finger of blame at the Tewksbury's for this. The family was evening the score, if you will, after the trial in 1884. But who the Grahams should have been worried about was a genial lone cowboy who claimed to be from New Mexico, whom they hired to help with the roundup. He gave a generic name when he was hired, but in reality his name was Robert Carr Blassingame, a former hash knife cowboy, a stock raiser from the St. John's area, and a hired range detective for the Apache County Livestock Association. Blassingame had basically gone undercover in the valley following up on reports that two cows belonging to William S. Atchison, a rancher who lived in Apache County some 80 miles away, could be found in Pleasant Valley in the possession of Johnny and Tom Graham. 
Following his undercover stint in late May 1885, Blassingame would swear out a complaint of grand larceny against the Grams, claiming that he had seen the cows with his own two eyes. And a close inspection showed the disfigured A of Atchison's brand on one hip and the clear JT brand of the Grams on the other. And he said multiple witnesses could corroborate this. Four of them just so happened to be James Tewksbury and his sons Ed, John, and Jim. When the trial got started in June 1885, the Grams claimed that the cattle in question had been part of those they had bought from William J. Flake back in 1882. So Flake must have bought the cattle from Atchison and then sold them to the Grams, who of course gave them their brand. It was all a simple misunderstanding, see? But this is where we get the testimony I talked about back in episode 120, where the Tewksburys are all too eager to talk about how the Grams took a few more cows than they had strictly purchased. We also learned that Blassingame may have been working for Atchison, but he had been tipped off about where exactly to find the cattle in question by Jim Tewksbury. So he had obviously been working with the Graham's enemies while operating in Pleasant Valley. And Atchison readily testified at the trial that he had never sold the cattle in question. In fact, he had helped brand the cows that had been sold to the Grams, and these two cows were not among them. But the real shocker of the trial was the revelation of how exactly Atchison became aware that his cows, which up and disappeared at the end of 1882, could now be found nearly three years later in the possession of Johnny and Tom Graham. It appears that several weeks before hiring Blassingame, Atchison received a letter telling him all of this, and that Jim Tewksbury, once in the Graham's employ, could testify to the same. And the sender of that letter? Why, a good old friend of Atchison's, of course. None other than James Stinson. Pause for dramatic reveal music. It seems that Stinson held something of a grudge against the Grams ever since the disastrous trial the year before. Remember that he had lost the money he had put up for bail when the Grams didn't show up for their perjury trial. Having failed at stopping the rustling of his cattle, turning his enemies against each other, and even just ranching in Pleasant Valley he decided to just throw the Grams under the bus completely. Things were looking pretty grim for the Graham brothers, but a lot of it was based on circumstantial evidence, so the prosecution asked for a delay in the trial so they could round up more witnesses. The Grams then left St. John's ostensibly to gather witnesses for their side, but when court was back in session a week and a half later, Johnny and Tom simply did not show up. The judge, of course, put out a warrant for their arrest, but, well, nothing really comes of it. Apache County approached one of the witnesses, a Yavapai County Sheriff's deputy, in fact, to ride to Pleasant Valley and collect them, but this deputy refused. If Apache County wanted something done, they were going to have to do it themselves. Now, I don't know why he turned this down. After all, he was there to testify for the prosecution against the Grams. Obregón Pagán posits that he may have read the tea leaves and knew that it was going to be a nasty time bringing in the Grams. The Apache County judge held everyone for three more days, but when the Grams didn't appear, everyone was just let go and the case put on the back burner. Now, to be fair, the Grams would appear in court in March 1886, but by that point no one was interested in prosecuting, seeing as the main testimony against them came from Jim Tewksbury, who clearly had a grudge against them. 
However, papers across the territory carried news and editorials about this case, which publicly branded the Graham brothers as liars and men who could not be trusted to live up to the oaths they swore. And if the legal war had proven anything, it was that they would sell out friends and neighbors for the opportunity to get rich. So their circle of support in Pleasant Valley started to contract, which meant they started keeping company with more unsavory characters. Again, to be fair to the Grams, it did appear at this point that they did try to find some way to leave the valley and all the animosity that had been stirred up. Towards the end of 1885, the Grams tried to sell their property, offering up 480 acres and 300 head of cattle. However, it also appears that they were trying to sell more than they actually could prove they had a claim to, seeing as we just said their herd numbered around 120. And because of this, they weren't able to actually sell their property. And so this one attempt to leave Pleasant Valley peacefully went nowhere. And we are going to wrap things up here this week, as the protracted legal war, some four trials involving the two families, more or less comes to an end. But next week, the legal battle will pivot into something far worse, as now the body count will start climbing as sheep herders, cowboys, the Grams, and the Tewksburys begin to really clash with each other. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. <laughs>